Shut up, Minmay. I'm Tom Panneries, and this is Origin Story. Hello and welcome back to Origin Story, a podcast miniseries brought to you by Pop Culture Affidavit, which is part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm Tom Panneries, and what I'm doing over the course of these 33 episodes is taking a look at the books that I bought from the summer of 1986 until the fall of 1987, which is the first time I collected comics. This time around, I'm taking a look at the only comic I'm covering for this entire series that was an independent comic from an independent publisher, and that is Robotech, the Macross Saga number 21, which was published by Comico. According to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, came out on August 7th, 1987, and had a cover price of $1.50, $2.25 in Canada. So this is, I think, the most expensive comic cover price-wise I am covering on this show. The cover, which is by Mike Leakey and Mike Chen, shows Rick Hunter and Lisa Hayes surrounded by the walls of the SDF-1. Rick is sitting beneath a poster for Min May's movie Little White Dragon, while Lisa looks at it with her arms crossed. A red box in the bottom right-hand corner tells us that the comic is as seen on TV. And it's a pretty good cover. We'll clue you into what's going on if you're familiar with the cartoon show. The title of the story is A New Dawn, and our credits are as follows. Markle and Joplin writer, Mike Leakey penciler, Joe Matt guest inker, L. Lois Buchalis letterer, Tom Vincent colorist, Maggie Brenner editor. At a hotel in Macross City, Min May pines for Rick Hunter, her sort of boyfriend, who hasn't called her in days. As she looks over a balcony and ignores the party that she's attending, her manager comes up to her, quite drunk, and says yes to Minmay's request for a reserved front row seat for Rick at her movie's premiere. Jan, who's an aging movie star that has been jealous of Minmay's rise to stardom, tries to accidentally spill a glass of wine on her. And finally, Kyle, her cousin and co-star and, and later manager, takes her home. Minmay calls down to the officer's barracks and tells the guy manning the desk to tell Rick that she's reserved a seat for him at the premiere, although she says that the message is from a friend and not from Lynn Minmay. When Rick gets off guard duty and passes by the, guard, the station, the security guard tries to give Rick the message, but once... He says it's from a friend. Rick runs off and he doesn't hear the part about the reserved movie seat. Rick tries to call Midmay, but she's not home. Meanwhile, Miria, a Zendrati pilot who has had herself shrunk down just so she can infiltrate the SDF-1 in search of the pilot who humiliated her in battle, stalks around and tries to figure out what human culture is like. 
Kyle and Minmay are the center of attention at the premiere of Little White Dragon, which is a kung fu movie, and the Zentradi are watching as well, amazed at the special effects, and actually are convinced that humans have magical powers, and then they are further confused by the kissing that they're seeing. Even though he never got the message about the reserved seat, Rick is at the movie premiere, and he walks out during Kyle and Minmay's big kissing scene. He bumps into Lisa when he trips and accidentally grabs her butt, and then the alarms go off that the ship is going through a modular transformation. Lisa says she needs to head back to the bridge. Kyle and Minmay head for a shelter, and Kyle saves Minmay from falling into a gap in the street. Lisa and Rick wind up getting lost, and they have to wait out the end of the transformation somewhere in the bowels of the SDF-1. They wind up talking a lot about their relationships with others as their relationship with each other, while the girls on the bridge, which we often refer to as the bridge bunnies, wind up being able to handle things without their commanding officer. Eventually, the alert is over, and as a result, Lisa and Rick confess they like one another, which isn't all that bad, especially since they spot Kyle escorting Minmay back to their hotel. They walk back to the bridge, holding hands. Over the years, I had a few issues of Robotech. Uh, these used to pop up in 50 cent bins, and if I was up for it, I'd buy them. In retrospect, I think that had I put together a whole collection, I might have been able to get a little bit of money on eBay for the entire run. I'm not saying I get a huge amount of cash, but a decent return on my investment. Anyway, the comics I wound up having were probably two or three issues of Masters, two or three issues of Macross. I did buy this off the shelf, though, because I had a little more money than I usually did for some reason, and I had been a fan of Robotech when it aired on WPIX in the afternoons for a while. In fact, if you want to hear about that particular cartoon, you can listen to episode 76 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the main podcast, which recently came out as of the time when this drops. In that episode, I talk about Robotech with Donovan Morgan Grant, and he and I talk about the Macross segment before I go on to talk about the other two parts of the saga. So this one, the Robotech episode, TV episode, is one that I recognized at the time, and for one that actually doesn't have a lot of action, is pretty engaging. One of the things that really worked well about this show is how well it worked out the relationships between all of the characters. Yes, Minway is really freaking annoying, but for some reason when you read it rather than hear her voice, it's slightly less irritating. I don't know if it's the writers of the comics or not, but there's much more depth than I get from the television show. And I will say that in adapting the episode for the comic, Markle and Joplin slows it down just enough so that the characters do develop a little more than fully on that than on that cartoon. Not that they didn't, but there were times that it seemed to well, it seemed to rush through things. And I even slowed down in reading the conversation between Lisa and Rick in the uh, depths of the F SDF one, and it felt. The whole thing felt like it was developing a little more organically than as rushed as it would seem sometimes in the TV show. And I think that is part of it is the scripting, the fact that you could do that with a comic book, and the artwork. The characters are rendered in a way that is dead on with regard to the television show. But Mike Leakey and Joe Matt illustrate the conversation scenes with enough variations and angles of expression that it's dynamic and engaging in exactly the way it has to be. Yeah, Lisa looks like she kind of borrowed Princess Leia's Danish and decided to drape them on her collarbone times, but the faces don't look 
photostatted over and over. This doesn't have the problem that a number of other cartoon adaptation comics of today do, which is that they're like screen caps of television episodes. In fact, I like that this is an adaptation and interpretation of the cartoon. Overall, I'm interested in honestly reading more to see how well Comico adapted the rest of Macross and Robotech as a whole. It's one of few two Comico series I've read, the other being uh, Matt Wagner's Grendel. And I may have to seek these out if I can find them on the cheap bit by bit. They are a little hard to come by these days. You have to have a pretty solid uh, comic store to find them because they're 30-year-old indie comics. They're not as ubiquitous in cheapy bins as they used to be. And if I am correct, issue number one of Macross was the one valuable one because it wasn't called Robotech. It was called Macross. There was uh, Japanese characters on the front and it was uh, maybe a low print run or something. Maybe somebody can back me up on that, but I'm pretty sure that was the case. But anyway, I also want to point out that uh, that as of this recording, actually as of when I was recording this today and it's coming out this past week, the Robotech series from Titan Comics, which uh, just got the license, just started. Um, I got the first issue. I have not read it, and I'll see how it goes. I put it on my pull list. I'll see if it's, if it's worth reading and, and see how they're doing. They're going to start with Macross, and it's been done before. I know Wildstorm did this, I think, back in... Like the the two thousands, early two thousands or something. Uh, so we'll see. We'll see if if this latest update gets any traction for something else from the series. Uh, Don and I do talk about how they've been trying to keep this alive, and and every time you turn around, there's some sort of interest in reviving something or rebooting something or keeping something going or whatever. So uh, we'll see how it goes. And uh, this is where I usually go on a break, but I do have a physical copy of this comic. It's a, it's printed kind of on Baxter paper, so it doesn't have that comic smell. But uh, I am going to look at letters and ads. Uh, letters, just really quickly, there is a letter column called Robotech's Macross Mail. It shows um, Lin Minmay sitting at a desk reading uh, a letter, which I guess is like fan mail or something. And uh, most of the letters are about issue 17. Uh, it talks about Ken Stacy or Stacy doing a doing the cover, which um, he did a few Robotech things here and there, and they were always pretty quality work. He did a Titans issue, New Teen Titans issue. I think it was issue 47 of the Baxter series. That was a pretty solid, uh, solid issue. Um. One, I, Matt Kegler of Oceanside, California, talks about how much he liked it and says, when I saw this episode on TV, I didn't like it, but you seem to have livened it up a little bit. I have enjoyed every issue of Robotech. And then he, uh, then Dennis Harrison says, just recently I bought all four paperback versions of the Robotech Master Saga, and I have enjoyed reading them, but they can't bring out real emotions as well as your comic series. For example, in issue number four, page nine, the look on Minmay's face when she thinks Rick has been peeking at her, and in issue 17, the message Lisa sent to the flowers with Rick. Um, and I think they're talking about um, the McKinney novels, which must have been coming out around this time. So that's pretty cool. Let's see. More about uh, issue 17. Michael Cho is breaking that down. Um, 
And really, uh, and then you have Anne Yen. Please give Mark Lynn a big hug for me for this marvelous rewrite of Phantasm. In the cartoon, I didn't care for that episode. I was disgusted with Rick for his inability to commit himself to one woman. The comic book opened new insights for me, and I was able to sympathize with him, caught between his boyish obsession with being Minmay's hero and the growing empathy between him and Lisa. Every time I read the comic, I get more out of it. Thanks for a fantastic job. P.S. By any chance this letter is printed, I want to say hi to both Elvis Orton, oh, Uncle Elvis, and Steve Mosher. And then uh, you have Robin McNamara of Doyletown, Pennsylvania, saying that she is the ultimate Robotech and Lisa fan. She says she enjoyed Phantasm. It was so different from most previous issues that the drawings were sort of harder and sharper than usual. That didn't detract of anything. It enhanced the book. She noticed a few things. On page 7, Vanessa was given blue-green hair twice. Okay, so pointing out some errors. Uh... This was not one of my favorite episodes because I despise Min May and I like Lisa, but I wanted to tell you how much I liked your artwork, Mr. Fong, who who drew it. I really hope to see more of it often. So, um, and they point out that Harrison Fong, who uh, who drew that issue, took over Masters with issue 20. And they say, be sure to check us this next time when Mike Chen makes his triumphant return to ink Mike Leakey's outstanding pencils in Battle Him. Ads. Most of the ads are house ads. There doesn't seem to be a lot of uh, a lot of actually paid advertisements. Um, there is a there's a monolith floating above Earth where it says something wonderful is going to happen. Comico, the comic company, and I I think it's supposed to uh, be a reference to. Comico the Black Book, um, which is a fifth anniversary celebration of Comico, as opposed to like a 2010 or 2001 adaptation or something, because there's a there's a advertisement later in the book for that. Uh, but I do like the ad because it's it's one of those really cool teaser ads where like hmm, I'm I'm curious about that. Uh, there is a ad for Justice Machine. A rugged regular series by Mike Gustavich and Tony Isabella. Built Comico Tough. And they're all coming at us. Your guide to great reading coast-to-coast delivery. Subscribe to Comico Comics. There's no heroes or villains or anything on the subscription ad. It's just a map of uh, the Pacific Northwest or thereabouts. And... Uh, and then just the prices for... Uh, for the comic subscriptions. Uh, there is a hype page, a Comico blimp um, letter, kind of like a bullpen bulletins thing. Uh, your Comico staff, you have your administrative director is Bob Shrek. Diana Schultz is your editor-in-chief. Um, and the the hype box includes Justice Machine number eight, the Macross Saga number twenty one, and Grendel number eleven, which is the I think penultimate Christine Spar. Am I getting that last name right? Um, 
issue. I think in this in issue twelve that her part of the uh, yeah. In, in fact, they talk about in, in September the Christine Spar like conclusion to that particular storyline ends. Um, then you have stuff like Elementals and Johnny Quest, which was another licensed property that they had. Robotech three D would be coming out. Uh, we flip through, and in the back we have that fifth anniversary comic of the Black Book thing. And in the inside back page, there's an ad that says, "Discover new science of intelligent life on TV. Watch Robotech. Check your local listings. Look for your favorite Robotech merchandise. Available now at retail stores everywhere." And it's just a collage of pictures from the various uh, TV series. And on the back. It'll jump right out at you and add for the Robotech 3D comic book, which was coming in August. So that'll do it for Robotech the Macro Saga number 21. I'm going to take a break, and I'll be right back. The Lonely Hearts Romance Comics Podcast, in which four guys talk about romance comics and about romances in comics with Siskoid. We're all uh, French Canadians here. Marty. In horror comics, there's often like this little, you know, <laughs> romance tinge, I guess. Okay. Bass. <laughs> we oh, just yeah. turned on him. <laughs> and yours truly, Fern. I'm very aroused. Featuring the overproduced wonder that is romance comics theater every episode. Dan, I knew it couldn't last from the first day you eyeballed me when I reported to work. It wouldn't matter if I washed in laundry soap and came to work in a burlap sack. I'd turn you on. And you have the same effect on me. I... I do? The Lonely Hearts Romance Comics Podcast, available at lonelyheartspodcast.wordpress.com and on iTunes. We've had a comic book I just finished teaching uh, podcasting at a summer program for gifted and talented students. Uh, it's a program run through UVA's Curry School of Education, and I was a grad student there up until, oh, about a few days ago because I finally finished my master's degree. And uh, I looked into it back in November. Um, credit to Amanda. She sent me the job listing, and I looked into it, and I saw that it might be one of those worthwhile summer teaching experiences. Plus, I've been looking to use podcast and podcasting more in my classes, so I figured that this would be a good way to experiment with teaching it and not have to worry about if uh, it doesn't work out. I'm one of those people who tends to be risk-averse, <laughs> especially when the risk or new thing involves other people. If I'm trying something in isolation and I mess up, it's fine. But when there's collaboration or it's for somebody else, I have a tendency to be a little more, well, safe in my approach. If I'm going to do some weird self-psychoanalysis here, I will admit that I do have a touch of paranoia about being talked about behind my back, something that getting uh, crapped on as a teenager did not help with. Anyway, my BS is not the reason an onion is on my belt this time. The podcasting course went well. It was basically three two-week courses. So three sets of students each we had about nine days, three-hour classes. So that meant that every couple of weeks I got to start over with a new class. I was working in the computer lab of a private school, so we were limited in terms of the equipment and software we had to use. But I will say that despite the lack of creature comforts I have when I am recording at home, they did a really good job. You'd be surprised with how good you can sound with only a $7 stick mic and a pair of dollar store earbuds at your disposal. Teaching the class reminded me of my own participation in the summer school program 30 years earlier. After the fourth grade, my school district 
instituted a summer school for elementary kids, and it was very much like this. I don't think it was like a selective as UVA summer program, but you couldn't be a total screw-up to do it. Plus, you didn't have to pay for it. If you did, uh, or if you did, I don't. You might, you might have had to pay for it, but I don't think it was like thousands of dollars. I think it was just a little bit of money. The classes ran in the morning, and I think they ran through most of July, and you took, I think, two classes or maybe three. I'm not entirely sure, to be honest. I do know that the junior high school was used for the classes, and I'm pretty sure that one of the classrooms was a room where I had a study hall in the 8th grade. But the class I remember most, which was held in the room I definitely remember from 8th grade social studies, was called Video Volunteers. It was a video production class, and the idea was that we were going to spend a few weeks learning how to shoot and edit a show of some sort. I don't know if anyone from my hometown listens to this show, but if they do, they probably remember the English teacher, Mr. Whitby, who was the teacher that, uh, and our, who was the teacher of video volunteers. And our class, I think, had like one video camera that was on a tripod. It was hooked up to a TV so you could see what they were recording. And it wasn't any special type of video camera. It was like one of those 80s camcorders that took a full VHS tape, although there was a function in it that allowed you to put text on the screen, which we took full advantage of. I remember three specific projects. The first was a biography thing. Uh, We had to sit in front of the camera while a partner worked the camera, and we had to tell everybody about ourselves. I remember talking about a trip I'd taken to Hershey Park in Pennsylvania, and that you could see me looking at the television repeatedly, as well as the clock, and I think a lot of us did this. Uh, in fact, I think I remember coming in under time significantly because I was talking too fast. Imagine that. The second thing we did was our version of Kiner's Corner. Kiner's Corner was the post-game show for the Mets, which was hosted by the late, great play-by-play announcer and Hall of Famer Ralph Kiner. So one of us played Kiner, and a few of us played various members of the 1987 Mets. I believe I played Howard Johnson, who, just to get off a quick tangent, was one of those premier players on the Mets in the late 80s and early 90s when they would be in contention on the regular but was starting their slide into mediocrity. In fact, I think Hojo is a bit underrated, as are some of the other players on those teams, and I honestly wonder if it's because of the fact that they never lived up to that promise of 86 and... Right after that came the worst team that money can buy era. I mean, our looks back at anything like this tend to be simplified, and the simplified view of the late 80s Mets was that they were, well, less than. I don't want to say awful, but less than. But I contend that they were definitely getting worse. Yeah, they were definitely getting worse than they were in 86. But I contend they, they were they were in contention. They were winning, and they were they were fighting for the pennant on a fairly regular basis. And I will get to more Mets-related stuff in a future episode, though. But So I'll bring my tangent back and bring it around to my role as Howard Johnson and my declaration in the show that the Mets were going to catch the then-first-place St. Louis Cardinals, who at the time I think were like eight or nine games ahead. And again, more on that in a later episode. We recorded this show as a panel interview, and the production value is probably what you'd expect from a bunch of fourth-grade kids with a camcorder. Some questionable angles, Zoom choices, no costumes, and nothing really going on in the background except the white wall. We did a movie review show, and I remember that each of us took one movie and talked about it. One guy talked about Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Another guy did a bit with Aliens where we actually had him do a chestburster bit. I think we had intended to use the little creature from the... It was a Masters of the Universe playset from Hordak. 
uh, the Horde or whatever that villain thing was, where it was like a swamp and there was a creature like he's a hand puppet and you go blah, 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 blah. and uh, and we use that as the as the chestburster xenomorph chestburster. I think my movie was Superman four, and I think I actually thought the film was one of the best I'd seen or something. I I was ten. I, I don't think Superman four was. I don't know. Like, I mean, I don't think Superman four is unwatchable. Uh, definitely not a very good movie, but it's kind of fun in places. Uh, unlike Batman and Robin, which sorry Stella, I just still can't with Batman and Robin. Anyway, the video project, I'm not sure if we actually ever finished it. I We probably ran out of time. We were running up against the end of the class. And while I never became a film producer, obviously, my parents did get a video camera for Christmas of 1987. After its novelty wore off and they actually let us kids use it from time to time, my friends and I would commandeer it on many occasions to make videos that were fake talk shows and skits and our attempts at music videos. In fact, at one point, we even had the idea to make a kung fu action movie. And I remember shooting a few scenes, one of which was like a funeral scene, where we put music... Uh, in the background by literally holding a boombox behind the cameraman and playing the music at a low volume. I think we had title cards that were placed on an ironing board in my parents' basement. And, like, I physically moved the title cards. None of these tapes, by the way, have surfaced at any point, and uh, they never will, ever. So don't ask, and, and, and you'll never see them. So even if I do find them, they will be destroyed. Uh, but when I think about it, <laughs> I sometimes wonder if I missed my chance to go to film school. Uh, then again, even if I did, I probably would have wound up washing out of the industry and choreographing porn or something. I don't know. And I'm creating and podcasting now, which really has become a passion more than a hobby. There was a time during my education as a writer where I was struggling to find my voice, something that continued well after college. Now, I think I have the voice, but the struggle has been finding a platform as well as an audience, both of which have become to really find through podcasting and blogging to a certain extent. Granted, I'm not in this for recognition, but I won't deny that knowing people are listening or reading from time to time is very nice. To take it back to the beginning of this ramble, what has really been great about this has been seeing these students, these students I was teaching podcasts do, latch on to what interests them and what they are passionate about and see them experiment with storytelling and commentary and sound. I think my only regret is that it's not a longer course because I could see myself doing this over the course of a semester and really having them dig into what's possible from this medium. So maybe I'll get to do that in the future in my teaching career, especially since I'm starting in a new district and maybe there's room for some elective courses or something like that. So I don't know. We'll see. But for now, that'll do it. And I will be back on August 11th, in four days. And in that episode, I will be looking at three, yes, three comics. They will be G.I. Joe, number 65, The Punisher, number four, and Marvel Age, number 56. Until then, you can check me out on the blog. I have now... As of a couple of weeks ago, but uh, but this is the first time I'm recording after I put it together. I have a Twitter feed for Pop Culture Affidavit. You can follow me at 
popaff. That's P-O-P-A-F-F. Please follow me. You'll. This is where I'll tweet out episodes, blog posts, etc., etc. The Facebook group is still around, facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. I, that's still very active. I post there here and there from time to time, especially anytime something new goes up. You can leave an iTunes review for the show, and you can email any feedback to me at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. And, as always, thanks for listening. Take care.